Hello and welcome to The Double Pivot, a new podcast that is definitely not quitting international soccer. That's right, we have so much international soccer to talk about today. We are a new podcast on the Howler Radio Network. I am Michael Cayley, and joining me on the line is a totally separate person, Mike Goodman. How's it going, Mike? Pretty good, Kelly. Uh, the music you heard on the way in was the Whalers. We've got Max on the other side of the virtual glass. Please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Like us, rate us, leave a review, all that fun stuff. And now we have tons of soccer to get to. We have so much soccer to get to. I mean, we, we, we had a cup final. We had um, an incredible set of uh, round of 16 games in, in, the, in the Euros, including England-Iceland, which we will, don't worry, we'll get to. But uh, we're a couple of Yanks, as we have learned from Twitter, and so obviously we're going to have to lead off with the U.S. Men's National Team third-place game. Um, I've been really busy. I was actually moving this week, and that, that game, I missed it. Uh, but, Mike, you want to, like, really break it down, give us the double-pivot sort of analytics perspective on that match. Yeah, they were fine. All right, cool. So the Copa America final was on uh, Sunday night. And I was actually, this was, I was lucky enough to be there. Um, it was, I was lucky enough to be there in the sense that I went to see a really, really, I bet went to see really, really good football players play a football game that came off. And then I got to see the incredible drama of the penalties, which was not, you know, it was dramatic, but not super fun. Uh, so let's just run this down very briefly. What happened was, not any goals. It was uh, nil-nil until 90 minutes. Uh, both of Argentina's strikers, especially Gonzalo Higuain, to a lesser degree, uh, Sergio Aguero, had a good scoring chance that they failed to they failed to put on target, and it's still uh, nil-nil through extra time. At which point it went to penalties. Uh, Lionel Messi, his penalty miss was. I mean, there were other penalty misses. His wasn't completely decisive, but his was, you know, dramatically decisive in Argentina, losing the Copa America final to Chile. So within this game in which I summarized all of the events, um, there wasn't a lot to happen, but there was a lot going on nonetheless. Uh, what were your takeaways from this match, Mike? It's it's hard to talk. You don't like this in finals, it's, but it's hard to talk about the game without talking about the ref. Um because you had two red cards, and you had two extremely questionable red cards. Um, look, it wasn't an easy game to ref. It was a very violent game. Um, you, Chile came out, and they did what they did. They threw themselves all over the place. You know, high press, aggressive, throwing themselves into tackles. And Argentina, you know, met like for like. And so, I mean, the first 20 minutes of this game, there were just bodies crashing into each other, both innocently and, like, incredibly cynically. Um, and then Messi drew two yellow cards on a defender, and he was sent off, and the second one was, like, it was a soft call. Messi got blocked off, but the defender kind of turned and pivoted in place, and Messi kind of ran up his back and fell over. It was a foul. I think nobody would complain about it being a foul. I think in a lot of games, um, you would say okay for that being a yellow card. But given given that the, the, the first half hour or so of that game, there were tons of fouls, tons of physicality, and very few cards, it was really, really hard to justify that call. And then 
it was even harder to look at the second red, the one given out to Argentina's uh, Marco Rojo, as anything other than a makeup call. It was a straight red for a lunging, sliding tackle that looked kind of bad, but there was actually very little contact. Nobody would have blinked if it was a yellow card. But then we were even. Um, and so the, that was the talking point of the entire match, was really that sort of dynamic. Even after the game kind of calmed down a little bit in the second half, and really maybe the story should have been the fact that Argentina completely shut down Chile. Like, completely shut down Chile. Chile had very few scoring opportunities. Um, it was hard to get to that past how much the ref affected the way the game played out. Yeah. I mean, I, I will, I will say sort of, I was, I was seated way, way up in the, in, in the stadium. And I, I, and so it was sort of this weird thing where like, I was watching the fouls and I was like, I, I'm not, they see people are mad, but I can't quite tell. But what I did appreciate about the ref <laughs> was I have never seen someone gesticulate in a way that fit his crowd better. This is a this is a stadium of some 80,000 and every movement he made it was precise what he felt, what he thought, what he was trying to express. Um so what you're and, saying and it, is it you were in the precise. cheap seats and he was playing to the cheap seats. He he was playing directly to the cheap seats. I was there, I was played to and I liked it. <laughs> I, I mean there was a moment where he called over, uh, called over Arturo Vidal after some like uh, you know a little bit of pushing and shoving in, in, in the box around around a free kick. He pulls him over and he does this dramatic like no more throws both hands forward and back forward and back and like you know if he had like suddenly picked up Vidal in that moment and like body slammed him, I wouldn't have been surprised. Like that that was the, I felt the whole game was building up to. Obviously, what was going on here is that me and um. Uh, you know, Sean Foreman of uh, Baseball Reference, great website. I was uh, ha- hanging out with, with him at the game. We spent a lot of the game discussing the ref as well because there was not a – the football – there was not a ton of event in the football. And I think that's the other big thing along with the ref is that is, is that not only did Argentina shut down Chile, and this is an impressive thing. Chile had scored, you remember, seven goals against Mexico – also, Argentina didn't create that much. Well, it was interesting because I, I, you put up an expected goal um, map today or yesterday yep. or whatever day, given when you're listening to this out there, um, that seemed to show that Argentina had a decent uh, expected goal total, but they yep. were concentrated in very, in, in very few attempts. There was, um, once again, Gonzalo Higuain earning the ire of Messi stands everywhere uh, with, a, with a pretty bad miss. Uh, Aguero had um, what looked like a golden opportunity uh, relatively late on, but there weren't there weren't like a, a, an abundance of half chances, right? And this is yeah. something that you might expect when two high pressing teams play each other, good pressing teams play each other. There was a lot of getting shut down in the midfield, and occasionally Argentina broke through with a really good opportunity that they just managed not to convert. Um, but it's. I mean, we should also talk about the fact that like the dynamic of the game changed on the hour mark pretty dramatically. Also, uh, when Argentina subbed out Angel Di Maria, who probably didn't have much more of an, than an hour in him anyway, he was coming off injury. Uh, but the way they decided to do it really impacted the last you know, hour or so of the game. Yeah, the because. Coming out of so the, the 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 red card to Rojo was very near the the, the halftime mark, 
and our, so our, so, and neither team had made a sub in response to the red cards. Uh, Chile had simply dropped. Uh, they, they 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 lost Diaz, their defensive midfielder, and and they had um, Fuensalida, their their the winger, dropped back into midfield a little bit. Uh, what Argentina did, they lost a fullback. They had Javier Mascherano drop drop out of defensive midfield into in, into the back four and moved uh, Romero Funes Mori out, out over to fullback. And in this ten v ten situation, which you came into at the beginning of the second half, Chile had a bit more of the ball. They it's not like they were creating a lot. But they were moving around in the final third more readily than they had been pretty much all game. And so because of this, Tata Martino chose when he subbed off Di Maria to bring in Matthias Kronovitter, who is a true defensive midfielder. Who you know He came forward a couple times and took a shot, and it was very, very troubling um, toward <laughs> the end of the game. But this, it, he brought in Kronovitter to shut down midfield. And because of this, the last half hour of the match, there was just not that much going forward for Argentina. It was me- it was the classic problem of our- for Argentina of Lionel Messi being tasked with linking play from defense to attack and also being the attack to which play is linked. It's, it's an impossible <laughs> job that he's given. Yeah, and I mean, we've, we've talked throughout the tournament about them playing like a broken system. Um, this was the example of that, right? This was the example of you focus on the defensive part of the team, shutting it down, and you say, "All right, Lionel, you know, do what do what you got to do, Leo, and make something happen." And he almost did, but he didn't. And then he missed a penalty, and now Messi is three tournaments in a row going past regular time in a final and not winning. Yep, and I think this is sort of the key. One of the keys to understanding this, and I think also one of the keys to understanding the Higuain thing, is this <laughs> context. Because what Argentina have done, and this was this was not dissimilar to how they performed in, um, in, in, I think this was a somewhat better match than they had in the last Copa America final, but it wasn't crazy dissimilar. And again, it was, I think it was, you know, definitely somewhat worse than, the, than, than their performance against uh, Germany. But in any case, what, what Argentina are trying to do is shut down the opposition, the de- make sure the defense does enough that they don't concede any goals. And in all three matches, they conceded no goals through 90 minutes, and two of the three conceded no goals through 120 minutes. That worked. And then the idea is that Lionel Messi and one or two of his friends will create just enough. They'll get those two, one, two, or three chances. They'll score one of them. And so what it does is it puts so much more pressure on those couple of chances. If all you've got is one, two, or three good scoring chances a game, then if you've got four or five, a guy can miss one or two, which players do all the time, and that's fine. But if you've only got one or two or three, suddenly there's a huge amount of sort of narrative pressure and expectation on those chances. Argentina's plan is that those, ch- those chances will be converted, and there's a very good chance that they won't. And I think that that's what happened to them in each of these matches to, to a certain degree. This last, one to the, to, you know, this last one is exactly what happened. They got a couple of chances, they didn't finish them, and that was all they were going to create in this system. Now, like... It's hard for me to say whether that is a fault. Like, maybe that's just the best way Argentina should use their talent. But when you have Messi, and defensively you have Mascherano, and you have good players... spectacular, we should say. Yeah, he was phenomenal. Also playing a large chunk of the game on a yellow card. 
Um, when you have those players, shouldn't they be aiming higher? Shouldn't should they be trying to play a system to play a way where they have more room for error? Um, and maybe, maybe look, you look at the rest of this tournament where they blew teams out of the water. Maybe they do have room for error against good teams, and it's only, I mean, against not great teams, and it's only against the top opponents where they sort of shell up this way and fall back into this pattern. But you'd like to think that even against Chile, Argentina has such a talent gap, even with the injuries that they were dealing with coming into the final, that they have more room for error than what, three good chances? Maybe only two? Um, I mean, there's, look, there's, there's, there's not going to be an easy answer to that. And you know, Leo says he's retiring anyway and that he's done with the Argentinian FA. So we, this, this might be an issue that we never have to deal with again. Um, I suspect... I, it, it seems like everybody in, in the world has... Uh, been willing to just give Leo one giant messy one giant backsy on this and been like, nah, you don't really mean it, you'll come around. Um, which doesn't really seem to be something that's afforded to the rest of the world. <laughs> um, but I suspect we'll see him again, and I suspect we'll be having this kind of conversation again, too. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, is that just, I mean, if you look at sort of who was on the bench, that Eric Lamella came into the game with 10 minutes remaining and started giving Messi another runner. Like, Messi is running into packs of four, five, and six defenders, and he has maybe one runner helping him. Because, um, you know, Ever Benega, what UC has isn't making those attacking runs out of midfield. Lucas Belia is not making those attacking runs out of the midfield. Uh, bringing on Lamella for those last 10 minutes for Benega gave them someone else in front of him. They're, 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 they had Nicholas Gaetan as an option on the bench. He never came in. You know, These are players that I think could have, that would have been something more of a risk. It would have meant that you don't have three midfielders really sitting back. But I think it also would have given Messi opportunity to like, you know, pass and run, which would have been nice to see. Well, and with that, we end Copa America for another indeterminate amount of years, depending on whether we do another Copa America centenario or not. Yeah, I mean, I guess it wouldn't be a centenario. It would just be North and South America combined for a super tournament for the heck of it. Exactly. Um, well, they could just keep calling it centenario. I mean, there are no rules. There are no it's rules. true. We're it's talking about FIFA. There are no rules. Look, this was a fun tournament, right? Like, I think yeah, we had all these... That. There were all these worries about the beginning. Was it going to be great? Was it not going to be? It turned out to be a really entertaining tournament, I think. Uh, and one that people, the teams that stayed in it were invested in. And so, I mean, you can't ask for much more than that, right? Yep. And, and I mean, it, it, it's, it's sort of weird that this tournament that was so fantastic and, like, really attacking, great finishing throughout, is going to be defined by a missed penalty. Um, it's true. And, and like, and like, just to say it for a minute, like, Messi is the greatest of all time, and the fact that his international team is set up weird does not change that. Yeah, and, and it's pretty. You can also very easily look at this and say Messi missed a penalty, and Argentina did not pick him up. Vidal missed a penalty, and Chile did pick him up. Um, yep. And so it goes, right? That's how tournaments work. 
Um, but we have lots more soccer to get to, yes. and we should uh, flip over to the Euros. Hi, this is George Gracie from Howler Magazine, and I'm here to tell you about a new podcast miniseries that we released on Monday. Here's the concept in one sentence. Anatole Youssef, the actor who played gangster Meyer Lansky in Boardwalk Empire, tells the story of a different European championship in each episode. Now, the gangster part doesn't really matter, but this guy can narrate like you wouldn't believe it's so good. Here's a sample. France was built around a midfield quartet of Luis Fernandez, Jean Tigana, Alain Gires, and Platini known collectively as Le Carré Magique, which does lose some of its luster when it's translated into English. It means the magic square. Platini, Gires and Tiganar were all playmakers, and the task of fitting them all into the same lineup would have stumped many coaches. Luckily, the manager of France knew a thing or two about attractive attacking football. His name was Michel Hidalgo. He'd played as a winger for the famous Reims team of the 1950s that first inspired the term champagne football. That was from Michel and the Magic Square, the story of Euro 84. Okay, you're thinking, but how do I hear the rest of it? I'm glad you asked. Look for Howler Radio wherever you're listening to this podcast. Just search for Howler Radio. Euro 84 was our first episode, and we'll be releasing a new one every Monday. Next up, Denmark 92. It's quite a story. Trust me, you don't want to miss it, because that would make Anatole upset. If you've ever seen Boardwalk Empire, you don't mess with those guys. Look for Howler Radio wherever you get your podcasts. to start so i was thinking that we would um i i think i think that there's enough like just sort of ah, coming up Let, let's start <laughs> with some some of like the football questions and move on to the sort of more theological questions of whether sort of icelandic fairies and elves are real um so i, I think i think we should start with um what i thought was one of the more interesting sort of uh it was a game, one game we were looking forward to. It was a game that I, I remember ta- I was talking to someone online, I think is a journalist based in Asia, who was saying that he stayed up until like 5 a.m. to watch this game. And then it w- and then like the entire world, as we were watching on Twitter, turned against it. Croatia and Portugal played a game where there was, you know, Portugal came out to break the game down, to make there not be football happening. Croatia did not respond all that well to it. And we had a very slow match that was de- de- determined with an extra time winner by um, uh, Ricardo Quaresma for Portugal. They're going on, um, but it was really it was interesting to see Portugal come out with a very specific plan. What did you yeah. think of it? Uh, th- this game was basically Portugal waited for Croatia to overextend themselves. And 117 minutes into the match, Croatia finally overextended themselves, and Portugal scored a goal. Um, it was very—I mean, it was a clear strategy by Portugal to not take any risks. Um, you know, the game was really tough to watch. Right? There were until the sequence where Portugal scored the goal, there was not a single shot on target. Oftentimes. That happened, well, actually, not having a single shot on target doesn't happen oftentimes at all. Let's <laughs> start there. But oftentimes when games are tough to watch, it's because the teams are not very good. That wasn't the case here. Um, 
this you know this was one of those games that that commentators will call cagey or tactical or you know all sorts of euphemisms for boring because both sides were rightly being cautious of the other side and you saw it right at the end of the match where Croatia's best opportunities they really started pushing right at the end of the match and they were able to push through even a very defensively organized Portugal, not organized, defensively committed. Portugal still had some organization issues, um, despite their sort of emphasis on muddying up the game. But when Croatia really attempted to, they were able to fight their way through and threaten late. But at the same time, that's exactly why they conceded the goal. Um, So it's almost like you can, as much as you want to fault these two teams for putting us through this match, for making us watch this thing, the end of that match really nicely showed why they were both why it's you can make an argument that they were both justified to approach it the way they did yeah and and i think i think it you know obviously you know portugal won that 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 always helps but i think it also shows that this was a we discussed in the previous podcast you know we were very impressed with croatia and in particular sort of the way that their system worked and the way that you know, they had leveraged their really their their great central midfielders into a coherent, strong team. And what Portugal set out to do was to not let them not let the central midfielders beat them unless they there were a lot of numbers thrown forward along with them. Uh, it, it, Portugal, uh, Fernando Santos brought in he made made one importance. I brought in it was I think Adrian Silva. Mm-hmm. And Silva basically sort of like for tried Moutinho. to make Luka Modric cry. Yeah, he brought him in for Joao Moutinho, who's much more of a, a, a creator, passer, and a playmaker. Um, yep. The other thing I think that it's probably important to point out is I didn't think the, the the game was refereed poorly, but it was definitely refereed in a way that favored Portugal's approach. Um, the ref was willing to allow a lot of contact was willing to call fouls without breaking out the cards, especially early on, which meant that Portugal was able to really nip at the ankles of of Croatia's midfield and really slow them down. Whereas a different ref, a ref with less tolerance, Portugal would have found it much harder to maintain that approach over 90 or 120 minutes. Um, I don't... I don't necessarily fault the ref. I certainly don't fault Portugal, and I don't really necessarily fault the referee. Right? All we wanted referee is consistency, and he was consistent. Um, and Portugal did a very good job of taking every single darn inch that the ref would let them take. Yeah, and I thought it's also interesting. I, I've I've been you know we have been a fan of this Portugal team. We've both both sort of spoken highly of them. I thought it was interesting to see after a group stage, which I thought that for the most part they really just came out intact. That, that, that their, their sort of four four two was a mostly attacking four four two. We saw that they can take those those, those tactics, make one sub, a few tweaks, and play a very defensive counterattacking game. I think I think that that is a good sign for what Portugal can do. You know, in, into the quarterfinals of this tournament. Yeah, it's, it's Portugal's really interesting. Um, we now have four games of, of, of Portugal, and. They would not have gone through if there were not third-place teams going through. And the storyline surrounding them would have been Portugal disappoints again. 
despite both of us feeling like they played pretty well in the group stage. And now they're, they're going on to the quarterfinals, and we still have, after the game they just played, it's still really easy to paint them as unimpressive, uh, despite the fact that we're both sitting here talking about the amount of offense that they generated in the group stage, even though they, that didn't turn into goals. And then what we think was a really smart tactical adjustment to play conservatively and pull it off against a pretty good Croatia team. Um, so Portugal to me is the, is the anti-narrative team of the tournament so far, right? <laughs> they're, they're the team that I think their, their performances and their ability least line up with what a casual interpretation of it might lead you to believe. Yep. And, and, they, and they've got a reasonably, uh, they've got, they've got a reasonably nice, uh, quarterfinal draw, at least as quarterfinal draws go with Poland. And just to let you know, we will not be talking about that uh, on this podcast, but coming in two days will be a full Euro quarterfinal preview where we break down the matchups and what to watch. So you can look for that coming soon on your podcast production listening device thing. And the thing you stick in your ears Poland. and you hear our voices. Exactly. Exactly. That doesn't sound weird. Um, <laughs> all right. Should we should we move on to uh, to Spain and Italy, which would be the other sort of marquee matchup of the round? Uh, yeah. How great what, was that? Yeah. It really. I mean, it if it took really being a nerdy connoisseur to take anything out of um, Portugal and Croatia. There was tons to take out of Spain and Italy. I think casual fans, nerdy fans, you know, people who follow these teams closely, people who just sort of tuned into the pomp and circumstance of the Euros and saw two of the more storied teams in the tournament going at each other in the round of 16. I mean, there was a lot in this game, um, starting with an early goal for Italy. Yeah, and I I think one thing that is... um... So it, I mean, Italy took it two two nil, and I think by by any account deserved the win. Um, you know, coming into the tournament, Italy were sort of a joke. Italy had brought a very unusual squad. Italy were clearly planning on starting a lineup which included a uh, sort of like mid table strikers Adair and, and, and Graziano Pelle. They were going to be using. Um, uh, they were going to be using in midfield around Daniel De Rossi. They were going to be using. Um, uh, Parolo and uh, Jacarini. You know, it's what is this team? And then suddenly they, um, and then suddenly we watch this game where we watch them beat Belgium in the first round, and now we watch them really just comprehensively beat Spain and take Spain out of their game. I think that, that Italy have shown they are so much more than the sort of simple sum of their talent that we thought they were coming in. Yeah. Okay. So I think for starters, we should talk about the way that Italy's formation really messed with Spain. Um, Italy play. People like to call it a back three, a back slash back five. It's not. It's a back three. They play three defenders, and the two wing backs at times are very aggressive, um, and they press uh, actively. Right. They, this is not a team that sits back defensively. Uh, Oftentimes, when you have a back three playing against a traditional back four, there's confusion as to what the wing backs should be doing. Who should they be pressing? Um, especially against a team like Spain, whose midfield, whose wide midfielders, whose 
players you would nominally think of as wingers, the guys that the wingbacks would go stick themselves to, don't stay on the wing. Uh, on one side is Nolito, who operates more as a second forward, a wide forward, but a second forward. Uh, and on the other side is David Silva, who is a central midfielder from a wide position. And the Italian wingbacks were not bothered. If there was no midfielder for them to push up and press, they just pushed right on through and pressed the fullbacks. Uh, and they got... and. And that allowed them to have one wingback pressuring the fullbacks and then to have both forwards cutting off the access to Sergio Busquets. Uh, Spain had a really hard time getting into their passing game. The, the angles and the lines that they usually would deal with weren't there. Um, yep. Now, you could... a few numbers on that. Uh, Spain in the group stage were, were c- completing between uh, like 600... 600 and 670 passes per game against Italy completed only 468. They completed only only 200 in the first half, and they completed over 300 in pretty much every other half of football that they'd played. This, what, what, what Italy did, the, the, the pressing style that Mike is describing, what it ended up doing was making sure that Spain couldn't even play their tiki-taka style. Uh, David De Gea played 16 long balls out of the back. He'd only played 20 in the three games combined before. So it was it was a completely different strategy. They, they couldn't find Busquets. Busquets became a relatively minor part of their position, possession game instead of a large part. And they ended up playing long balls, which I think ended up being leading to one of the one of the more unusual and interesting substitutions of the tournament, where Spain needing to win, need, needing to get ahead, needing needing to get back in the game, um, brought on a second center forward, Adaris, um, and, and 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 pulled Nolitos. So they really had two big center forwards that they could lump the ball to, and that was what Spain was doing, trying to beat Italy. Right. It was it was apparent very early on that Spain was going to have to change something. That th- the starting basic point of Italy's approach and Spain's approach, Italy was winning, um, and they needed to. And, and so they, they they won that early tactical matchup and needed to force Spain to make an adjustment. Um, so Spain brings on Adaris, and it makes. You can absolutely make an argument, and, I, and on Twitter I actually thought I, I proposed this fairly early in the first half, because when Italy is pushing up that high, they were leaving Spain the opportunity to lump the ball long and get in three-versus-three situations at the back. And there were flashes in the second half where that started to materialize, Um a couple of times you would have one of their three more um, attacking midfielders, either Fabregas, Iniesta, or Silva, with the ball at their feet, with Adderiz and um, the other forward. Murata. Yeah, with Adderiz and Murata in front of them, and three central defenders, and you're thinking, okay, this is, this is a good situation developing uh, for Spain. But they didn't execute quickly in those situations. And that's a product of what Spain's traditional approach is. So they would get into those three-verse-threes, and instead of looking to capitalize them, they would then slow up and look to fall back into their possession game and create chances. And that just allowed Italy to get nine men back behind the ball. And they were not able to then break those, you know, 
break the Italy down from those situations. And it didn't, so it didn't work, right? They were not able to snap into that, go long, go fast, create shots against Italy before Italy gets settled. And so then they had, they had more, and you know, the other thing is, we talk about bringing on Adoriz as a second forward, but that's not quite what ended up happening. What ended up happening as much was Morata pushed out wide into the position that Nolito was subbed off on. And so Morata was playing almost as, again as a wide inside forward. Now he's more forwardy than wingery, uh, sort of on the spectrum, than, than Nolito is. So you were sort of moving in that direction, but... I think if you were going to make that move, you had to really commit to sticking the two of those guys up front in the middle with one midfielder playing off of them. And I don't really think, I don't know whether Spain wanted to do that and they just weren't tactically in the moment able to change that drastically, or if they never really conceived of that substitution doing that to their shape and that format. Um, but it clearly didn't make enough of a difference. Yep. And I would say I would say the other thing that, that that struck me as I was going going through this game and sort of rewatching bits of it, looking at numbers, is how readily Italy passed out of the back against Spain. And I think I think someone uh, we, we were talking about this, and someone linked us a, 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 an article in which Shavi uh, talked about why it was always tough for him to play against Italy and against their back three system because he said it's very hard for that forward line to press if you've got three center center backs who can, who, who can all, who are all reasonably good at shooting at the ball at, with the ball at their feet and three or four options with central midfielders and wing backs to pass to and what we when we saw that happen I think in this game completely that um, that it, that Spain's forward line there was there was no real forward press from Spain. That they were not able to break up possession in positions where you kind of expect a traditional uh, sort of tiki-taka pressing team to do, br- break up those possessions, win the ball back, and recycle it. That just wasn't happening. Um, and one thing I was, I was thinking about a little bit, because to some degree, there's, that's the numbers, you know, the numbers Italy have. I, think, I was also thinking about the, the players that Spain are playing in their forward line. You have a, um, you have a Real Madrid-Juventus striker, you have uh, Celta Vigo uh, winger or wide forward, and you have a Manchester City attacking midfielder. You don't have a bunch of guys who've been playing in the same system together, and you don't have a bunch of guys who've been playing in pressing systems almost at all. And I, I think that what, what we saw was that Italy took advantage of a weakness in that personnel as well, to be able to pass through guys who they wouldn't expect to be that effective as that first pressing line for Spain. Yeah, I think that that's definitely part of what happened. And I think that what the other part of it is that Spain just weren't able to... We There's no plan B, even more offensively than offensively. There's no defensive plan B, right? And even, even if Spain would have considered dropping very deep, uh, making life difficult for Italy to attack and then counterattacking, once Italy scored the early goal, that... You know, that approach was was out the window anyway, because Italy would have been perfectly happy to not challenge if Spain sat di- sat deep, and we would have seen a very, which would call a typical Italy performance, where they were perfectly happy to just sort of pass the ball around in their own half until the game was over. So even even if Spain had wanted to do that, that was probably not an option that was on the table anymore. Um, but yes, their press wasn't good. I, I I don't know I don't know what they could have done to improve it. And after the Adderiz sub didn't work, nothing really – there was nothing systemic 
as they pushed later in the game that made you think that they were getting closer to cracking it, right? It was there were very there wasn't they weren't able to tighten a noose of pressure in any real and meaningful way that you felt like there was any like five or ten or fifteen minute stretch of the game where you you said to yourself Italy's in trouble here. That never that just never happened. Um, despite the fact that Buffon had to make a really big save uh, late in the game. There was off a, a, a punt and a deflected headed clearance that just fell to Sergio Ramos. Like it wasn't, and you could even you you could argue that they were trying to do that if that had been what they were sort of doing for twenty minutes or whatever. But it never really was, and so I mean it was just it seemed to me like a pretty comprehensive tactical victory for Italy. Yeah, and, and, and I think what's, what's interesting this because they also had I, I can't remember who it, it fell to. But they also had a, had a set piece header that Buffon made a save on at the very end of the first half. Right, and that might, um, that might have been PK. I think that I think you're right. I think that was PK. I think it was the center backs. Yeah, and um, and so I think one thing that's interesting here is the way in which randomness can affect football outcomes. And it didn't. One of the things, the, the, the round of 16, for the most part, the teams that won either deserved to win or didn't at all clearly deserve to lose. I'd say six of the eight pretty clearly were deserved winners. And um, Switzerland, Poland, Wales, Northern Ireland, you know, could go either way. Um, and in this match, it very easily could have been that Italy put on, like, just a spectacular tactical performance, a really fun attacking performance. And... A deflection didn't fall their way, and Spain equalized late in the game. It goes extra time, and who knows what happens. Yeah, right, exactly. We, we, we didn't see in, in this round of games any of that, really. Um, yeah. Which, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's a thing that purists will, will point to and like, right? Like, you don't have anybody standing and crowing about, you know, XYZ team is a totally undeserved winner and, and, and shouldn't be this deep in the tournament. I mean, everything sort of went well within the realm of the performances that both teams put up. Um, the other thing I want to hit with Italy, though, is, and we talked about this a little bit when they played against Belgium, we're talking about them being tactical. We're not talking about them being defensive. This is not a closed-down defensive Italy. Um, they There's press. nothing Tatanaccio here if you want to be using, yeah. Right, exactly. They press, they get up and down, they get bodies into the box in possession. Uh, so the, the wide players always have numbers to, to aim at. Even if, even if they're not like combining really prettily to like, you know, like slice teams up down the middle. When the ball goes wide, there are bodies forward to cross to. And you have, you know, these games where there are... They're willing to concede opportunities at their end to create opportunities going forward, um, which makes for good matches. Um, the fact that nobody's like taken advantage of it yet against them is is interesting. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they, uh, when Germany plays, if Germany will just muddy it up against Italy and just try to pick them off, which I think is a strategy that might pay dividends, but we haven't seen anybody really try yet. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see to what degree this Italian press works against Germany. I think Italian yes. press against against German possession is going to be a fascinating matchup. Yes, which we will talk about later. Which we'll talk because, about in our preview. Yes, because now the Icelandic gods are calling us home. Yeah. They've, I, they've bidden their time. They've waited. You know, 
they, there were no peals of thunder during during our, our long Spain and Italy tactical breakdown. They held their tongues, but we can wait no longer. Yeah, sacrifice must be made. Uh, yes. Yes. Iceland has smite. Iceland has smitten? Smited? Smote? Smote. Smote. Iceland has smote England. And, and, and let's let's be clear about this. We're sort of joking about like the like you know um, the ridiculousness of it. But again, just as these other games, this was not an undeserved win. No, Iceland outplayed England. Kind of Iceland decisively. outplayed England over ninety minutes. And and I, and I mean, I feel like there's been there's been some sort of talk I, I I've seen around about like you know don't disrespect Iceland. You know, this is a good team. They're thirty fourth in the world, and like. They played a good football game, but if you look at the players that they have, they've got a couple guys in good European leagues and a bunch of guys who are somewhere toward the semi-pro end of this. this This is a team that has a bunch of good players who play well together, but this is not a team that a well coached and structured England team should lose to. So what you can have then is it's both true. It's both true that Iceland played a really impressive game, great work. Really, we can talk about about their defensive structure, but it's also true that England were horrific. Yes. All right. I, the, the one the the thing that I really want to highlight about Iceland first is that set piece throw in play that they they yes. scored their equalizer on, which was it was gorgeous. Um, Everybody looks at Kyle Walker, who got beat by the runner. Uh, he was the guy closest. It was his guy that scored the goal. And that's fine. Walker should could have done better. But the long throw to a knock-on to a runner who was running to a spot that the ball and arrived at perfectly, it was a gorgeously designed play. And it was a specifically designed play for a throw-in because it took advantage of the fact that off of a throw-in, England can't play an offside line. So England's defensive line was set and Iceland had a person positioned beyond the defensive line who then had to be marked by English players so that the um, Sigurdsson, the other, who scored the goal, could beat the defensive line, not be offside, and be within the six-yard box to receive the ball. It was was just a gorgeously designed play. Um, Yep. And you can can see Sigurdsson start his run well before the flick on header is made. Like, he knows right. exactly where he's running to. He runs to the spot, and the ball hits him. It's, okay. it's yeah, exactly how they drew it up. Yes. Now, that said, down to one, the lack of any meaningful cohesive attack from England was pretty damning. Um, and look, Rooney, Rooney in, in midfield has been a story the entire, the entire tournament. Uh, Sometimes he's been okay, sometimes he hasn't. Here, the, his lack of incisive passing for the guy that is on the ball the most is a huge problem. And there was, look, Hodgson recognized that there was a midfield issue at halftime, clearly, right? He brings on Jack Wilshire, but he brings him on for Eric Dyer in sort of the midfield version of the let's play all the attackers substitutions that he made against Wales, right? This was just the let's bring on the more attacking midfield midfielder for the defensive midfielder, and that will make us attack better. It didn't make them attack better. Yeah, Wilshire, like, Wilshire found himself without 
not defended in very deep areas and played a bunch of long balls, which basically played right into what Iceland were ready to defend. Yeah. Tactically, when you're doing this, there needs to be a plan for progressing the ball. There needs to be a plan from getting it from the defensive line through the midfield to good attacking positions, whether those attacking positions are out wide, whether those attacking positions are at the top of the box, whatever they are, you have to know what you want them to be, and you have to figure out how to get them there. England's attacking possession looks mostly like work really hard, play four or five passes to get from the defensive line to Rooney or maybe Wilshire right around the halfway circle, and have one of them, one of the two of them play a long ball out to the wide fullbacks who would then put in a contested cross, if everything went well, right? There was, no, there was no plan to turn possession into meaningful chances, it seemed. And Iceland didn't gift them any, and so they didn't score. Like, it, it's not rocket science. Yep, and, and, and then, you know, so... This is this is the the structure of the game for some um, you know sixty minutes or so where England are just sort of trying a bunch of crosses or you know having you know and, and they just kept also there was also just a bunch of guys misplaying the ball it was not there was there was a lack of tactics true, true. and you know when they did get the ball to Harry Kane he was losing it over and over and over again when. When Wayne Rooney wasn't playing a progressive pass, he was also just like passing the ball to a, to an Iceland midfielder for some reason. So they they also blew, they not only didn't have a plan to break things down, but they kept messing up even in their non breaking down possession. Um, and then with this being a problem, with clearly the issue of how to break Iceland's lines, how to move their defensive line side to side and find holes to pass through. This is what England need. And so Roy Hodgson does is just throw on striker after striker. Okay. Like it, it was, it was a, I, I thought that it was basically an abdication of managerial responsibility in place of management. Yeah. Look, you have still Henderson, Barkley, Lalana. Milner, none of whom got in the game, all of whom to varying degrees, either by on-ball or off-ball movement, are good at progressing the ball forward. None of them saw the field. Um, and so you're left with sort of like... It is incredibly weird to shrug your shoulders and say, what did you expect when Iceland just beat England? <laughs> but you watch that second half, and you watch the way England did and didn't play, and the subs that Hutchins didn't or didn't choose to use, and you say, well, what do you expect the outcome to be? And you extrapolate backwards from that. If Hodgson doesn't have a, a plan for how do we improve the midfield progression of the ball, you have to wonder... How could he have imparted that plan to the players on the field, right? If he's not looking at it and saying, oh, clearly we need more, I don't know, Henderson carrying the ball forward. Or clearly we need more Lalana cleverly moving into pockets of space. Then it's hard to look at Jack Wilshire not moving into pockets of space and say the fault is on him for not carrying out instructions when... Everything about the tournament seems to indicate that there weren't instructions to carry out. 
Now, I, I also want to make sure you don't go too far, right? Because England were clearly good enough in the group stages. They were clearly good enough against Russia, against Wales, and against uh, Slovakia to create enough chances to win and be very good defensively. But the moment when they really needed to desperately break down a set and organized defense, they just couldn't. Yep. And, and and the the whole sort of structure fell apart by the. I mean, there, that, I think that there there were moments in the second half where one man would be pressing the ball and other players would be off doing. There, there was no cohesion in the team. Like it was early on, it's like, oh, these guys aren't quite working together. Later on, they just. I thought they quit. I don't know that I'd say they quit. I would say that they yeah. fell apart. Yeah, each individual kept trying to do stuff, but there was there was not a team concept. Yeah, I, I, I think yeah, I think that's right. I think that you don't want to get too much into the uh, like the historical stereotypes of, of of national identities with these soccer teams, but England so- English soccer for a long time has had this reputation of when things get tough, everybody tries to do it themselves. Um, this was the knock on the Lampard and Gerrard generation, where in times of strife, they would just keep dropping deeper and deeper and deeper to take the ball and then try to do everything. And I think you saw a version of that against Iceland, where everybody, you know, to the extent that anything happened, it was individual. And, you know, the like the small vestiges of team cohesion that might have existed just fell by the wayside completely. Yep, yep. And, and, and it's, it's, again, sort of the, like, the randomness of things. You know, they did – Harry Kane did have a he- header later on. Later on, Deli Ali just missed a header later on. There, there, there were some strikes that those individual performances could have carried England if Sturridge or Kane or one of those guys had had their, you know, 90th percentile game instead of their, you know, 25th or – Third for Kane, it could it, there still could have been a sort of you know undeserved or lucky winner here, and that didn't happen. Right. There's no rule that says that in a game where you play badly, you can't have a moment of brilliance. Right. It, it's, this is not like a cosmic law that forces that to be the case. Although uh, fans of England may disagree, <laughs> um, but it didn't happen. And if you're at the point as, as a team where you walk away saying, well, we could have had a moment of brilliance, <laughs> yeah. then you haven't done your job. Uh, and, and I think it's fair to look at England and say, well, they didn't they didn't do their job in this match. Which, yeah. And so they which, lost to Iceland. Right, which takes nothing away from Iceland. Iceland yeah. did their job, and they did it admirably. Um and that's what—that's how you get this result. That's how you get this clear result. Iceland did their job admirably. England didn't do their job, and now England go home. Yep. So the, right. the, the, I think that that is going to be what we've got on the football. There will be more of the football because there is so much football, and we've been having a lot of fun with it. But there's been slightly less football recently, I, and I—I I have heard through the grapevine that Mike Goodman has done things that weren't football. Is that true? That is true. There were two days where there was not a single match to watch. And I did something wild. I left the house, and I went to the cinema. 
twice on back-to-back days. Uh, the first night, we saw my wife and I. Now you see me, too. And the second day, we saw Independence Day Resurgence. And let me tell you, those are two movies. <laughs> they began, there were moving pictures, and there were credits. Now, you might ask me, or you might ask me, why would you go see these two movies with your precious few days off from watching soccer? To which I'd answer you, the same reason people climb Mount Everest. They were there. Um, look, the movies weren't very good. They were silly. You didn't expect them to be very good. All I will say is this. Two movies that ask you to suspend an incredible amount of disbelief. It was much more believable that perhaps aliens would invade the Earth a second time, 20 years after the first, than to believe that we lived in a world where magicians are such a big thing that they become viral video superstars and people are flocking to their pop-up shows on New Year's Eve. Um, you don't go to see these movies because you expect to see good movies. There were some fun set pieces in The Magicians. There was... Magicians. In, in, um, Magicians is a very good TV show. I highly recommend. Now You See Me Too is a movie that had a couple of fun set pieces amidst a lot of people boringly talking at each other. And Independence Day was the closest thing to two hours of a movie studio saying, this is our new franchise, give us your money, and we don't care what we put on the screen. So that was my time off from soccer. That's what a- about you? So I, I, uh, I, I am recording this from a new apartment, a somewhat larger apartment, uh, which, which is good. I've, I, I think I've discussed I've got a two-and-a-half-year-old son. And so the main things that I accomplished during that break were packing, which I am not going to go into on a podcast, um, <laughs> other than to say that um, one thing I have learned, one piece of wisdom I can impart to you kids out there. Anyone who tells you money can't buy happiness never hired movers. Um, <laughs> this is so incredibly true. So uh, the main thing I've been doing is dealing with the emotional reactions of a two-and-a-half-year-old to moving, which are, which are kind of interesting. Um, he, like, at one point, I, I've been telling him for a while, we're going to move, we're going to be moving, we're going to be packing, and... Um, and, 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 and at one point, I was starting, so Sam, we're, you know, we're going to be moving. We, we walked over to the new apartment. You see, I have a playroom. And he says, but we won't move our rooms. And trying to figure out how to answer that question, like, well, the ceilings and the walls won't move, but we will move the furniture, sort of gets at the way which a two-year-old cannot possibly comprehend moving from one apartment to another apartment, especially when he has no memory of, of, of ever having done that before. So what we ended up doing, you know, we, he was with his cousins for the day of the move, and we, um, and, and we set up his room and everything as well as we could. And when he comes into the door, we could show him, here's your crib. He goes, wow, Daddy, it is my crib. <laughs> and uh, wow, it is my potty. 
it is my bath mat. And, like, just seeing the things that were there, sort of, I mean, this is not saying that it was some amazing sort of uh, parent triumph. He also spent a about a half hour sitting in one of the moving boxes asking me to close the top and he would lay down in there and it would be quiet. So, you know, he, <laughs> he, he struggled emotionally. But the main thing that I that I have done is parenting. And so in place of Bible History Corner, this is Rambly Parent Stories Corner. I'm sure they're going to be wonderful and get, get great reviews. Anyway, so that is our podcast. As discussed, you can... Uh, rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And we will be back soon this week to preview all of those games in the quarterfinals, which will surely be exactly as good, if not better, than the two matches today. Uh, so thanks for listening. Mike, you want to? Uh, eventually I'll have a sign-off line. But until then, see you next time. Cheers. Cheers.